We lift up our prayers to you as one body, community of believers. And we give you thanks. We give you thanks for your son, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and became a man, was crucified, buried, and on the third day rose again, and then ascended to heaven where he sits right now. We give you thanks for your spirit poured out among us, inside of each one of us, and here together active as a community. We pray, Father, that your love for us, the acceptance that we find in you, would be a a transformative power in our lives, that we would um, walk um, from one grace to another grace as we mature into faithful believers who both look more like your son and are better equipped to go out in mission to make disciples. We pray this morning that as we open up the scriptures and discuss and study together, um, that your spirit would um, be present and be speaking in a powerful way. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that we prayed. Amen. I am fascinated with the brain. I've always a little bit been fascinated with the brain. There's so much that we can learn, and there's so much potential for our lives as we learn about the brain and make certain improvements. It kind of impacts almost every area of our life, including, I'll argue this morning, our faith. Have you ever heard of um, Baby Mozart? There are these, these products out there. Um, sometimes it's just music, or sometimes it's a, a DVD or a video. Um, and what they do is they play Mozart or um, Bach or you know, a classical musician like that. Um, sometimes with the videos, there's kind of like these complex geometrical shapes um, that come with it. And the idea is, the theory is, that um, by adding this kind of enriched environment to your child's life, even as far as to the fetus in the womb, you can play this Mozart music, um, or to your infant watching um, these videos or listening to the music, um, that it will, the promise here is that it will lead to an increase uh, in that child's IQ later on in life. Um, this is a pretty popular belief. Um, I'm familiar with the products. I think most of us probably are familiar with one of these things. Um, this comes out of a field that we call neuroscience. Uh, and it's a booming discipline in the scientific community. Um, it'd be hard-pressed for any of us to say we haven't seen an article on the internet or a video segment or a self-help or psychology or health book at the bookstore that doesn't make some mention of neuroscience. And neuroscience is this field that explores kind of the science of our brain, the chemistry, the electricity, the structure, um, the way it works, the way it reacts to certain things that we do. Um, and as we learn more about the brain, we discover a lot of important things. We discover the potential um, for our actions and intentions to uh, mature and develop our, our brain and the pathways inside of our brain. And we also start to figure out that we're wrong about a lot of stuff. It's only actually been the past hundred years or so that we've had access to technology and the correct understanding to really start to make some gains in the field of the study of the brain. Um, and one of the things that happens is, like all science, we come to believe that certain things we used to believe are now no longer correct. Uh, and baby Mozart is actually one of these things. It's a very popular, they call it a neuromyth. Um, it's kind of taken hold um, globally. 
Um, but a neuroscientist would tell you there's, there's actually no scientific basis at all um, for playing this music, for seeing these shapes. Um, if you look into the history of this, it comes out of one study that was done. And the study was a group of people listening to classical music. And then a few minutes later, they performed some intelligence tests. And they did perform better on certain aspects of that intelligence test. There's a few differences, though, between this study and the babies or the fetuses. The first is that this study was with college students, not young kids, not infants. Um, You see a big age difference there. The brain works differently between college students and babies. Although I'm a professor, sometimes it doesn't seem like it. They can be um, babies sometimes. So can I, so I think it goes both ways there. The second big difference between kind of the Mozart theory or effect and this study is that this study actually only had effects that were transient. It only lasted about 20 minutes. After about 20 minutes, the intelligence improvement um, was gone. You know, it wasn't something that carried over later into life or that built up over time. Um, And what happened is um, right after the study came out, you know, the way that media sometimes does, it blows up all over the internet and in articles and in journals and books. And someone wrote a book called The Mozart Effect that without any kind of scientific um, basis claimed for the most part from the study that listening to Mozart can pretty much improve every aspect of every person's life, including uh, the enrichment of our babies here. Um, scientists would say though that, that our infants don't even actually have the neural structures to understand and process complex music. Um, they will say music's a powerful thing in the life of a child, but here's how it's powerful if they start to learn an instrument. And this is the type of enrichment that does produce kind of a mature brain. We're starting a new series this morning called Neuroscience and Faith. And what we're going to be doing is exploring the importance of understanding the brain, the potential that it provides us in terms of how it informs our faith. Now, I have to admit as we begin that I'm not a neuroscientist. I don't play one on TV. And I don't particularly want to play one at church. Uh, it's an ambitious task um, to try to talk about a field as complex and dense as neuroscience. My nose has been in a few textbooks over the last month or so, but I still kind of feel like every time I read something, I'm trying to learn it again for the first time. Um, and so here's what we're going to do in this series. We're going to look at spiritual disciplines, things that the scriptures tell us to do to walk in in order to faithfully follow Jesus in order to flourish as a human being. And we're going to compare that to some kind of mounting evidence that the scientific community is giving us, telling us the why and the how behind these ancient practices of wisdom that we've received. We'll find out actually that it seems as if our brains, these complex organisms, are actually wired, literally wired, for life in the kingdom the kingdom of Jesus, that when we walk in the ways of Jesus, our brains mature and flourish and create new possibilities for us that were not there before, and that when we don't, our brains deteriorate. This is the promise found throughout Scripture. If you go close to God, you find life. If you fall away from God, you find destruction and despair and pain. Um, We're not interested in neuroscience, at least I'm not, um, just because of the health claims. Indeed, there are tons of health claims um, but you, if you focus just on that when it comes to science and things of that nature, you start to kind of creep towards what sometimes is called the prosperity gospel, um, which is a focus on receiving. I think scripturally, though, the better focus is on becoming. Um, we want to practice good um, disciplines that help us 
um, strengthen and make healthy our brains, not so that we'll just receive certain benefits in this life, but so that we'll become a certain type of person, be able to experience what God has to offer us. Even neurons, neurotransmitters, all these things that we can make healthier. And I do believe all of us in the new stage in our life, the science says we can do this. We can make small intentional acts that actually does make dramatic improvements in all areas of our life. Even if we accomplish this, one day your neurons will die, right? I mean, we can work on health and it's important to work on health. But at the end of the day, the Christian hope is in resurrection. And it's our character and our virtue that continues on um, into this new creation that God is um, pulling us towards. Okay, so let me give you like maybe three to five minutes of Neuroscience 101. I've been spending like a month trying to prepare for this. I'm not a neuroscientist. I can't make all the qualifications that need to be made. I may pronounce a word incorrectly or so, um, but here we go. You have a brain and it's inside of your skull. And that's about as confident as I can get, 100%. I don't think anyone can debate me on this. But the brain is a super complex organism. It's made up primarily of two types of cells. One is called neurons, and the other is a harder-to-pronounce name. It starts with a G, gilial cell, something like that. These are cells that support neurons. Neurons are kind of the basic messenger units of the brain. They take in, analyze, process, and send out information. And you have in your brain right now up to about 100 billion neurons, which is a large number if you do the math. Each one of these neurons has about 1,000 to some of them 10,000 synapses, which are kind of bridges to communicate with other neurons. So you can see it starts exponentially, the number game just gets bigger and bigger. And then beyond that, each of your neurons on average is firing 200 times every second. So the amount of processes that your brain is going through just right now, to try to understand someone who doesn't know science, trying to talk about science, it's trillions and trillions of very exact, very powerful, very profound processes. The brain communicates with electricity, and with chemistry. And so there are electrical impulses that are passed forward that produce certain effects in our lives. There are chemicals that are sent across to communicate and change our lives as well. We know some of the more popular chemicals probably. Dopamine, which functions in our kind of reward center. It makes us motivated. It makes us focused. If you are uh, someone who has ADHD, you're probably familiar with dopamine. Somehow administering dopamine in your life probably makes you a lot more focused, a lot more motivated. Serotonin is another one. The two of these are usually called the happy chemicals. Serotonin seems to be pretty well related to feelings of happiness and contentment. These are all things that our neurons produce that change our lives. And what neuroscience is able to do through different kinds of scans and studies is take a deep look inside of our brains and see exactly what is happening. When we experience something, when we do something, when something is done to us, how do our brains process this? What's the flow of the message? What things produce more of certain chemicals? And what things inhibit the production of those chemicals? 
then we can slowly but surely start to understand the very complex lives that we all leave. The first thing this does for me is it makes me just wonder at the marvel of creation. I mean, our bodies, not just the brains, are so complex. And this reflects on the intelligence and wisdom and just pure creativity of God. It also makes me grateful just from the outset because as many things that are happening in your body, that's as many things that could go wrong. And yet God in his faithfulness wakes up our neurons every day, helps along these electrical impulses, sustains the production of these chemicals. I was reading a, a, a passage earlier this week that said, perhaps God delights in monotony um, and doing the same thing over and over and over again. Perhaps the sun doesn't just get up by itself, but instead every morning God says, rise. And every sunset he says, go down. Perhaps daisies aren't just made automatically, like with a press in a factory. Perhaps God delights in making every single daisy individually and never gets tired of the beauty and the intricacy through creativity that expresses. Our bodies are powerful things. Understanding our minds is important. It has a lot of potential for us. And through this series, we're going to look at a few ways that these spiritual disciplines interact with and transform our minds. Um, we're not looking at this to try to prove anything, okay? I think it's always a bad bet when you rely on science, which is kind of constantly changing to try to prove something. Um, we're going to instead let this kind of scientific evidence just inform our faith. In a sense, this is like a series we did earlier in the year called Liturgy, where we talked about the embodied aspect of worship, that worship is embodied and physical because we are embodied and physical. And so to intentionally participate in, in classical, traditional, physical worship is to form our character. This, in a sense, is the same thing, exploring the embodied experiments, but not of worship, of spiritual disciplines. What happens to our bodies? How are we made new, which is the promise of Scripture, when we follow Christ? And as we'll see, we're actually literally made new. Our brains, the structure, the molecular makeup, they're transformed. The first thing I want to look at, the first spiritual discipline I want to look at is gratitude. So if you have a Bible, open up with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you're familiar at all with the kind of positive psychology movement, things of that nature, you'll find that a whole kind of field has kind of grown up around gratitude. Um, this is not actually a new thing, human beings appreciating gratitude. It's very ancient. Cicero, a philosopher, once said that gratitude was the kind of mother of all virtues, all good character traits, all virtuous aspects of humans start and proceed from this experience of gratitude. And it's a powerful thing in our lives and in our faith. Look at First Thessalonians. We'll look at one verse here. Chapter 5, verse 18. The Scriptures say this, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We find here a command. This is not a suggestion. Paul here is not saying, like, if you ever get around to it, it might be nice to feel grateful for it. If ever the dice roll in your favor, 
Gratefulness might be a good option to explore. He says, do this. This is a command. This is a, a matter of obedience. And this is a command that we don't find isolated here in this passage. In fact, if you were to read the Bible from the front cover to the back cover, and you paid attention to this, what you'd see is the command to be thankful is one of the most central commands that we have in the Scriptures. It would appear upon reading that gratefulness, thankfulness, makes up a large center of the Christian faith. From very long, the Israelites were constantly told to be thankful. The Israelites um, uh, were a culture, a society in the ancient world of parties, festivals. If you compared how many days off they had compared to our modern work year, you'd be a little depressed and you need to practice some of these, these tools here. Get your chemicals up. They took a lot of time off to celebrate and to remember because God commanded them. He seems to know, right, as if he created us what the best way is for us to flourish and mature. He even gave them physical ways to be thankful. At times he'd say, build a structure here. And then when you look at the structure, you'll remember. Or tell this story over and over and over again, the story of the Passover. And as you tell this story and experience it anew every time, your heart will swell with gratitude. And you'll be able to walk in this command, this style of life. You'll notice that Paul here in 1 Thessalonians 5 says that this command to give thanks is the will of God in Christ Jesus. This is the purpose of God in our lives. If you ever wondered, what does God want me to do? What does God want for me? This is surely one of the most clear answers. God desires of you and of me that we be a grateful people. And he says it again in this verse, in all circumstances. It's a challenging command here. Not just when things are going well, but also when things are going poorly. How might we be able to find this gratitude? Well, I think gratefulness arises from a concentration on creation. Creation itself, I think, produces gratefulness. We've already talked about just the complexity of our world and our bodies and our brains. But when we think about it, every single thing we experience is a gift from God. We didn't have to experience life. It wasn't necessary. We didn't do anything for that. It's all been given to us. And there's this thing called gratuitous goodness, which is goodness we've been given, but goodness that didn't have to be, that seemed to be just like an extra flourish on the top. Um, we can give a few examples of this. Um, we won't go into too much detail. Um, reproduction and sustaining one's body. Um, these are two kind of vital processes in a creature or species um, um, prolonging itself, continuing itself. Um, and it is the case that some animals, God could create us this way, could reproduce with very little pleasure. It's just kind of a me- mechanistic thing. And that we could eat without very little pleasure as well. I don't know if you've seen Avatar or not, but you know we could just have these tails that plug into a tree, like a Tesla car, and just charge up at night. <laughs> and then we're good for the next day. We've got our fuel. 
But instead of doing that, God creates taste buds. Think about this. This is gratuitous. You don't need taste buds. But he creates it so that when you're at Papacitos, (laughs) which I think was the intention in Genesis, you bite into that fajita with queso and guac, some of that melted butter. You're able to worship. I mean, your body rewards itself. This is gratuitous. It doesn't have to be that way. If you look at a lot of um, people who are depressed, you know, clinically severely depressed, um, sometimes one of the effects of this is a lack of appetite or, you know, the lack of pleasure from eating. Nothing really tastes good. Um, But usually this is one of the last things to go from people who are suffering in this kind of spiral um, of depression and despair and sadness. Usually, and I can attest to this, I've, I've been in these kind of spirals of depression. The one thing you kind of have left at certain points is like, well, I can still eat. I can still enjoy that. And it's tempting to kind of let go of your health a little bit because that's really where you only find pleasure at, at this moment. Likewise, you can surely imagine reproduction does not have to be the way it was created. We still compare most uh, pleasurable experiences, even the strongest chemicals we can make synthetically in the lab, with the pleasure we get from making love, from reproducing. It's powerful. It's transformative. It creates intimacy. This is gratuitous. I mean, this is extra. It's over the top. There's so many good things around us. Creation produces gratitude, and then new creation, salvation, produces gratitude. In fact, salvation, I think, centers us firmly in a posture of gratefulness. Not only was our life given to us by grace as a free gift, but our new life, our salvation, our forgiveness, our freedom, our promise of future, this is given to us without work or effort. We wake up into a a story, the narrative of the gospel, in which we are the beneficiaries of God's great, unimaginable love. And the Christian life, I think, is indeed centered on gratitude. Just take the table, for instance, an act of worship that kind of centralizes the Christian life. One way to look at the Christian life, I believe, is a coming to and a going from the table. Every Sunday, we come to the table, and we leave from the table. What happens at the table can be called communion, can be called the Lord's Supper. Its more traditional name is the Eucharist. It's from a Greek word that means to give thanks. We come to the table in gratefulness. Our liturgy at the table, you can pay attention to it perhaps later in the service, emphasizes gratefulness for this very reason. The table is a place where we're reminded where we remember, where we can take a physical step of worship and appreciation and gratefulness. Grace is the primary thing we receive from God, and grace produces gratitude. The Christian life is this to and fro of receiving grace and responding with gratitude. 
Now, let's talk about some of the science behind gratitude. The scriptures, I think, are pretty clear that gratitude was the way in which humans were supposed to walk. It's the way in which we flourish as followers of Jesus. It's the way in which we find our life and are equipped to give that life to other people, to spread the message, to bring hope and love to other people. It's very hard to do this when you're angry or fearful or stressed or not sleeping. I don't know if you ever tried. It's very hard to... Um, to you know, really follow after Jesus and be obedient. It's very hard to reach out to other people, try to bring them hope and love and happiness. Gratitude centers us in, in a few interesting ways. I'll, I'll just, I've got about 10 studies here in front of me. I'll just pick a couple um, to um, communicate some of what's happening here. UCLA has a mindfulness awareness research center Um, And what they've found through lots of studies and lots of scanning and things of that nature is that regularly expressing gratitude, being intentional and regular about producing feelings of gratefulness, which really, right, that's not too hard. Gratefulness is not a matter of difficulty. It's a matter of intentionality. I mean, just open up your eyes and you'll find things to be grateful for. You probably won't run out of things to be grateful for just about being intentional about it. They found that this intentional experience of gratitude literally changes the molecular structure of the brain. Your CNS, the central nervous system, is affected profoundly. You feel more peaceful, less reactive. You get better sleep. You're prone to exercise more. Your stress levels go down. So your hormones are affected. Um, it, It triggers Um, increased blood flow and activity in the hypothalamus, which is a gland that controls hormones. And um, you may have heard of these hormones, but cortisol is a hormone we get when we're stressed. Stress decreases our health, decreases our ability to do certain things. Chronic stress is a, a large killer of people in the modern world. Gratitude actually, by communicating, interacting with this gland, decreases cortisol and increases oxytocin. You may have heard some powerful opioids that go by names similar to that. It's a feel-good chemical. And remarkably, the areas of the brain that this activates, um, this feeling of gratefulness, this hormone production, are not found where scientists initially expected them to be found. They thought this would mainly be a, a, a thing happening in the parts of the brain we associate with rewards and pleasure. What they found was gratefulness is actually more centered in the parts of the brain that we understand as relating to morality, relationships, and perspectives on the world around us. It's not simply feeling pleasure. It's actually a complex social emotion. Gratefulness makes you more likely to be generous. It creates this kind of virtuous cycle. Gratefulness opens up your eyes to what other people are doing in the world and for you. Gratefulness in response to God, I think, deepens that relationship, this social walk that we have with a personal God. So we recognize his provision for us and his grace for us. Of course, gratitude also chemically affects our brains. It releases um, and increases the production of um, popular neurotransmitters. We talked about a couple of them, dopamine and serotonin. These are produce feelings of contentment. They help us focus, be motivated. They decrease depression. 
They decrease anxiety. They're called the happy chemicals. If you have ever struggled with a mental illness, and, and I have, you um, know that there's two primary ways to try to affect our brains if things seem to be off course. One is with electricity, because our brains communicate electrically. At the, the more extreme side of this, you have electroshock therapy, electroconvulsive shock therapy, um, which is very extreme to most of us. Actually, in like the psychiatric ward, it's the gold standard for treatment of depression. The side effects, while maybe severe in the past, aren't that bad anymore. They can control it a whole lot better as we study and learn more about the brain. But you can do a lot of littler things, too, with electricity to help your brain out. Um, you can magnetically stimulate parts of your brain. Um, and there are lots of procedures like this that have great effects on depression and anxiety. Um, and then you can, of course, take pills. And most of the pills are a chemical strategy. So what these pills will do, these popular antidepressants, is they will increase the level of serotonin, say, or dopamine in the brain, or they'll inhibit parts of the brain from taking that chemical back so that sit a little bit longer in your brain and you experience a little bit more of the effects. Again, this is a very complex thing. Anyone who's had depression knows this. Your depression, your experience as a human being is more than just biology. Culture affects you. Experience affects you. Personality, genetics affects you. But it, you're definitely not less than a biological, chemical person. So we know things like with depression, serotonin, a decrease in levels of serotonin seem to be consistently related to feelings of depression. But we know there are exceptions. That's why when you're depressed, they don't take a test to level your serotonin levels. So it doesn't really tell you exactly. That's why when you take um, certain antidepressants, there are a handful that almost all do the exact same thing. But it's a, almost like a, a, a puzzle to figure out which one might work in your body. It's complex. But dopamine, serotonin, these things are produced. Another study that I found interesting um, was a um, study at the University of Southern California, which used some of the advanced um, MRI technology we have to determine the neural correlates of gratitude, so what parts of our brain are activated um, by this. Um, and they found, again, that it's found in, in the parts of the brain that encourage prosocial behavior um, that produce community and morality. Um, they also found that simple acts of gratitude, for instance, like gratitude journaling, it's a very popular thing now, in fact, it's an entire treatment of itself. It's called gratitude intervention. People with certain illnesses, um, physical or mental, um, this is a, a treatment plan to intervene in your body or in your mind with gratitude, to change things around, to try to put things on the right path. Um, what they found was these short, simple gratitude writing texts um, allowed your brains to increasingly become more easily grateful. So there are these neuroscientific principles, two of them that are kind of related. One is um, a theory um, that is, is readily used in the, the community, and the popular you know, phrase goes like this, neurons that fire together wire together. What they mean is as many times you exercise a neuron, a network, a map in your brain, these things deepen. You actually watch the brain structurally change, take a different shape, by things of that nature. 
What this means is if you practice thinking negative thoughts, negative thoughts are easier for your brain to process. Those pathways are deeper. They're simpler. If you practice being grateful, it's easier. Your brain's more likely to feel grateful and to experience the benefits that come with that. The other similar related principle is is called the plasticity of the brain, which basically means your brains can change. They're remarkably flexible. At almost any age in your life, you can make a dramatic difference in the structure and, and, and workings of your brain just by some intentional practices. In, in a sense, your brain seems to have like a gratitude muscle. It's a metaphor, but this muscle, and as many times as you exercise it, it gets stronger and stronger and has this spiraling effect. The last study I'll mention was done at the University of California at Davis, partnering with the University of Miami. And what they did was they had a group of participants. They split them up into three groups, and they were told to do something in each group for 10 weeks. The first group was told to write down things that made them grateful. The second group was told to write down things that irritated them. I think an easier task, maybe. I think most of us do this pretty well, maybe not in writing, just in our minds. The third group was told just to write down neutral events. And they found what you might probably guess now. After 10 weeks, the group writing down um, these grateful experiences reported on self-reporting tests 25% higher levels of happiness and contentment. The negative group reported approximately 25% lower feelings of happiness and contentment. And the neutral group just kind of cruised along. (laughs) Even more remarkable at the study is they followed up some months later with brain scans, and here's what they found. Just that 10 weeks actually rewired your brain, and it stayed the same months later, even without those practices. It had changed the structure and the the function of your brain in a dramatic way. These are kind of what habits are in a scientific sense. You do something over and over and over again, and it becomes easier, and before you know it, it becomes second nature to you. And gratitude is, is one of these things that we can utilize in our lives, not only to be obedient to the commands of God, but with these um, expanding scientific studies to understand why it is that God commands us to be grateful and how it is that this gratefulness enriches our relationship with him and with others and allows us to be more faithful as we follow Jesus. So here's how I want to end this sermon. I'm going to give you um, three practices of gratefulness. Three things you'll find over and over and over and over again recommended by neuroscientists and recommended by spiritual formation experts. They converge on their recommendations for human beings. The first one, I think, if you're going to choose any one of these three, and I really encourage you to, is the one I would say, do this one. If you don't want to do all three, whatever, do, do this one. This will, I think, have the most effect. And it's this, keep a gratitude journal. Um, most journals, productivity, you know, journals, to-do lists, calendar scheduling things, often they'll now include this kind of gratitude science and they'll incorporate that in just planning your day and your calendar and your to-do list and your goals. Um, But here's where it gets super effective. Here's where you can really pinpoint, maximize the effectiveness of this. When you wake up, before you really get started, write down three things you're grateful for. 
when you go to sleep, while you're still awake, not like fading out, write down three things you're grateful for. And people who do this, both religious and non-religious, find they sleep much more peacefully and restfully. They relate to others a lot more successfully. They're able to accomplish more. Religious people, Christians, experience this growth in their relationship with God, experience an increased capacity to find life in Jesus and his kingdom and to offer that life to other people. The important part about this is to be specific. So better than saying I'm grateful for my granddaughter would be to say I'm grateful for my granddaughter's laughter, which brings me joy in the moment, which centers me in the life that I have. Better than I'm grateful for my house would be I'm grateful for the opportunities my house affords me to experience connections with other people, to feel safe and comfortable. The other two practices are this. Redirect negative thoughts. It's called self-talk. This is actually, again, a theological principle that has been reached as a conclusion apart from any science. Um, We sometimes call this preaching the gospel to ourselves. If you've ever done some mindfulness type stuff, um, what you realize is that you are not your thoughts. And oftentimes, we really get off track when we just assume we're controlled by our thoughts. Uh, This is really what meditation is. It's just standing as neutral observers of our thoughts and recognizing we don't have to believe them. We don't have to follow them. They come and they go. Cognitive behavioral therapy, one of the most um, successful ways of counseling, is simply this, learning how to talk back to ourselves, learning how to interrogate our assumptions. I'm fearful um, that because this person said that to me, um, that I might lose my job. And the ability to say, okay, is that really a rational thing, though? Is that, what's the likelihood of this? What is the likelihood that me worrying about this will increase you know, my ability to avoid it, things of that nature? Um, there are a couple ways you can um, practice specific strategies with negative thought self-talk. I'll give you one um, that I like. Um, it's switching haves to gets. So instead of I have to go pick up my kids at school, I get to go pick up my kids from school. And it's not like a cheesy, like, just kind of cliche thing for you to do. Like, we still understand this is a chore, right? This is a pain. I'd rather not do it. It's just a way of reframing it, even if it's still kind of a negative experience. So if I have to go grocery shopping, guess what? You get to go grocery shopping. None of these things are promised to us, and these are surely not gifts the entire world receives. Instead of I have to go to church. Well, you do. I'm sorry. We'll just leave it at that. (laughs) I get to go worship. Powerful gifts in our lives. The very last one is this. As embodied creatures, it's good to do more than just writing or or mental thinking. It's good to verbalize things. So one practice that's often recommended is to tell a spouse or friend or a coworker something you appreciate about them every day. Actually, just practicing good manners goes a long way in gratitude. The more you say thank you, the more likely you are to eventually consider what someone else has done for you, even if it's a routine thing. You're setting yourself up to kind of be caught in a, that was actually really nice. Feel grateful and this will produce generosity in your lives. There's lots of evidence all around us from philosophy to psychology to science, 
that the commands of God, specifically this morning, the command to be grateful, is a command for us and not against us. It's a command that enables us, not restricts us. It's a command that leads us further into the life of salvation, the life of the kingdom. We're able to more freely receive God's love and better equipped to share God's love. So as we come to the table, we're invited to practice discipline right here and right now, to practice the discipline of gratefulness. In a moment, we'll pray, and then all will be invited up. You don't have to be a member of our church to practice open communion. And for those who would like to come, we invite you to. You may come and worship and remember and be grateful. We pray with you. Father, we give you thanks for the command to give you thanks. We give you thanks that you know better than we do. That you have not left us to ourselves. Father, if it's true that we are embodied creatures, we're physical creatures, then one of the best gifts we can receive from you are ways to walk in life as a physical creature. Open our eyes up. This is our, our main prayer. Open our eyes up to the gifts around us. Allow us to open up our hearts and receive and experience and cultivate gratitude in a bigger, and more powerful, and more profound way. Help us to center our lives around the table where we come to recalibrate our very daily rhythms around the grace that we have received and the thankfulness that it produces. We love you, and it's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen.